Welcome again, uh, everyone, uh, and welcome again, everyone online with us today. I don't know, I think most, most of us here are probably old enough to remember when the internet was coming into being, and there was people starting to set up websites, and all the futurists were talking about how this was going to usher in a whole new era, that everyone would have all this knowledge and facts at their fingertips, and so everyone would instantly become more well-informed. You didn't have to go to your library to figure things out. You could just punch it into a search engine on Netscape or America Online. We always called it America on Hold, I think is what we called it. <laughs> and, then, and then what was going to happen is with all, this, all these facts out there, all this information, everyone would become more enlightened and, and prejudice and ignorance would melt away. Those were the days, weren't they? It was so optimistic. Those were the days. And so the internet grew, and then your aunt found it. Your aunt found it. And it isn't just that your aunt found it, it's that your aunt doesn't believe the earth is round. Your aunt thinks the earth is flat. She just couldn't believe that for a while. And it used to be that everybody, everybody in your town, you know, used to just, you know, oh yeah, Aunt Judy, she's really sweet. Just don't talk about the flat earth stuff with her. She just, just don't talk politics. She makes a mean casserole. She'll help you out when you, she'll help you out, but just don't, don't talk about the curvature of the earth with Aunt Judy. And everyone just kind of dismissed it, no big deal, you know. And people from time to time are like, oh, Judy, the earth is, the earth is flat, so what's on the underside of it? Roots? And she'd be like, and everyone would grumble, and it was no big deal. Then she found the internet. And she punched in flat earth and discovered all sorts of other people who believe in a flat earth. And it was ignorance at first sight. <laughs> and, and they not only supported one another, but they shared facts about how big geography and NASA, and the global special interests, although I'm not flat global special interests, didn't want you to know. And now, she has tons of these interesting little tidbits to back up her claim that the Earth is flat, and why haven't you looked those up? Are you afraid? Has big geography got you bamboozled? I mean, and so, you know, and so then somebody's sitting down at coffee with her, you know, and I go, come on, come on. I mean, re really, why, why, are, why would they lie about something like this? Is it just because the airplanes want to all, want, want to be late, so they want to fly longer and justify flying in an arc? Oh, I didn't think of that one. Is NASA trying to sell you lots of posters? Ooh, I didn't think of that one. Actually, all the NASA material is, you just Google it, it's all public domain. They give it away. Anyways, is it so that the government can hide something on the dark side of it? Are the Decepticons down there? What's happening? You sheeple, you sheeple may think it's funny, but this is serious stuff. And Jean, you need to know. And you can try to present Aunt Judy with facts. You can try to present her with all sorts of facts. You know, you can show a picture of the Earth. This was taken from space. Oh, I, I was just created on a computer. It was taken in the 60s. Computers couldn't do it. 
Oh, it was staged. Were they staged? Same place they staged the moon landing. You could give her mathematical calculations and go, see, this is how the curvature works. You could show her the trigonometry. She'd be like, how do I know you're not using funny math? What does that Sokatoa really stand for anyways? You could even show her. You could combat, you could combat Facebook with Facebook and show her a meme. If the earth was flat, the cats would already pushed everything off the edge. And she'd go, ha ha, funny. And then you realize, Aunt Judy's mind is Teflon. There's nothing you can say that will matter. There's no amount of facts and numbers and data you can throw at her that will matter. And she's not trying to refute your facts with facts. She's just, she's just choosing to disbelieve them. She's just choosing to mistrust them. Well, how do I know? How do I know you're not lying? She isn't battling trigonometry with trigonometry. She isn't sending her own rocket up into space to take pictures to prove it. There's a principle out there. They got a name for it now called belief perseverance. The longer you believe something, the less likely you give it up. Your ego starts to realize and it all kind of works subconsciously, but your ego starts to realize that the longer you've been clinging to a belief, the more stupid you feel admitting you were wrong in the first place. And it's like the more you have invested in the false belief, the less likely you'll give it up or reconsider it. And it makes sense. If you don't care about something, you can easily change your view. Right? I could come up to you. I could come up to you and say, did you know? Did you know? Mangoes are poison ivy. And you'd be like, yeah, right. Mangoes aren't related to poison ivy. And I'd be like, yeah, Google it. And you can Google it, and you will find they're in the same family. Mangoes are actually related to poison ivy. But most of you would be like, oh, that's interesting. You're not going to worry that big taxonomy is trying to somehow do something because you don't care about that. You don't care that much about mangoes. Okay, sure, fine, whatever. You revise your views, you move on, life goes on. But if it matters to me, and the more it matters, the less likely I want to admit it's wrong. So there's a little truism here. There's a little truism here, and that is, it isn't as much that we are afraid of changing our positions, or learning new facts, or revising our views. It's that we're afraid of the implications of being wrong. So, so say it again, it isn't that we're afraid of changing our views, or even that much afraid of admitting that we're wrong, because we could do that over some things. It's we're afraid of what it would mean. What would the implication be if it's wrong? If it's going to be something that's disruptive or embarrassing to me, well, our brains will tend to shut it out. If it's dis uh, disconcerting, if it makes us uncomfortable, if, it, if we've sort of built our identity around something, then it's really hard to give it up. There's an old saying, and I wish I remember who said it. Um, he said, it's hard to get a man to believe a truth when his, when his livelihood depends on the lie. Which is why there are so many stories in the Bible of Jesus running into people, and they say, I refuse to believe he's the Messiah, even when they see something that he does right in front of their own eyes. You know, like in the mega long Bible reading today, and I actually cut six verses out of the middle, if you can believe that. This is the shortened version. 
But you get the story. There's a man born blind, right? And what does he do? Runs into Jesus. Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, which is the day that God has commanded you not to work. And so in come the Pharisees, or some Pharisees. I always got to say some Pharisees. There's a lot of them. They're a big group. You know, people tend to tar all of them. It, it's just a, it's always these small little groups that come in. But anyways, there's a bunch of them that come in. These are experts in the law, and they hear about what happened. And they meet the guy in person. They actually run in, and they meet the guy in person, and he testifies. I was blind, I was a beggar on the streets, but now I can see. And Jesus did it. And then they get all worked up. Because breaking the Sabbath makes you a sinner. And God doesn't give powers to sinners. So therefore, Jesus cannot be from God because he is a sinner. You follow the logic here? And therefore, the guy can't possibly be able to see because it couldn't have happened because it happened on the Sabbath, and that would have made Jesus a sinner and God is a good part of sinners. Bing, 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 bing. So th th there's this whole logic they're following there, and it's a big debate for them. But the guy's standing right there, and so then the people come up with different things. Well, maybe it's just a look-alike. You know? Maybe it's his twin. And he's like, dude, you know, I don't know if, the, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner, but I know I can see. It had to have been from God, right? And so then how do they, these Pharisees respond? They banish him and kick him out of town. We can't have him running around testifying this. This throws everything off too much. And you go, wow, poor guy, he's begging, he goes from being a beggar, now he gets to see, and the response is, now he gets kicked out, you know? And you kind of think, you read this, and you're kind of like, that argument's a little bit obscure, isn't it? I mean, like, can't we just redefine sinner a little bit? Can't we just make some exceptions to the Sabbath? I mean, in modern Judaism, you know, there are lots of very reasonable exceptions to the Sabbath, such as you can cure people on the Sabbath, right? You don't have to sit there if, you know, somebody's car's in a wreck, you know, at 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon and turn your watch on and watch them bleed out and go, all right, we got, I hope you can keep yourself alive till 5 because I can't do anything till the sun goes down. That is not how the law works, you know? You can be an ER doctor and work on the Sabbath. Right? You're not, you're not required to let people die. That's not what it's about. And so Jesus comes, and what is his sin that makes him a sinner? I mean, he's not running around kicking puppies. He's not running around like when looking at kids when the ice cream cone, when the, ice, the third thing of ice cream falls off their cone and lands on the tar on the hot summer day in front of all the cool kids. He doesn't sit there and laugh at them. Not that I know anything about this. But it's important. And the Sabbath is important. I think that's one of the things we forget. The Sabbath is important. The Pharisees, the Pharisees are not really, they're not monsters. In some ways, they get a bad rep. And people think that they're overly legalistic. But they're just, what they're doing is that they're following, they're following God's law, which is very clear. All the law and the prophets are all about the Sabbath. They go on and on and on and on about the Sabbath. And the Pharisees don't get this idea that we shouldn't be doing elective healings, that's the other point, if you notice, right? He could have waited one day. He wasn't bleeding, the guy wasn't bleeding out. He did an elective procedure on the Sabbath, right? 
But the, it's the Pharisees' job, essentially, to run around town and kind of bother people not to work. It's their job to kind of poke at people and say, you need to keep the Sabbath holy. You need to stop farming. You need to stop trading. You need to stop doing this. You need to keep it holy. They're not monsters. They're protectors. They're protecting God's law. They're protecting it from being watered down and possibly disappearing, which is a very real risk when you are a minority group in a hostile minority culture, you have to define those lines better because you're always in danger of everything sort of watering down and disappearing away. And they're concerned about that, and that's a legitimate concern. They're protecting the law and the people. And when you get into a protective mode, you start to think differently. When you, when you get into a protective mode, you start to see the world as threats and non-threats. And you're always evaluating that. And, and you start to see, and, and so you start to see some guy coming up and trying to change your mind, and your immediate thought is, is this a threat to my way of life? And if you start thinking that somebody might be a threat, changing your mind might be a threat to your way of life, you're going to have a very hard time listening. Which brings me to my second truism. The more your thinking is about protecting and defending, the less open you will be to facts that require you to change. Because the more you have to defend, the more you have to lose if you're wrong. And this is a large part of what Jesus is up against. And religious people are notorious for being resistant to updating thinking when presented with facts. That's one of the constant criticisms that you get out there, right? Religious people are closed-minded. Science progresses, and they cling to old views, right? You know, I know someone, she handed me a magazine, um, and on the cover of it was a, a caveman riding a dinosaur. And there's only, what, you know, 65 million years between the two. And in fact, now that I think about it, I know, wait, I shouldn't know this about dinosaurs, but I think I do. I don't think that's a 65 million year dinosaur. I think that's like a two ages before dinosaur, maybe a hundred million year old dinosaur. But either way, either way, right? She's showing that to me. I'm like, why? Because she's trying to cling to that idea, you know, that the earth is young, you know? And things change. I mean, you know, sometimes things happen. You know, someone comes along. Hey, the earth revolves around the sun. Heretic, you know? Or maybe the Apostle Paul didn't write every book in the Bible that has his name signed to it. Heretic, you know. We, we are notorious for seeing facts and deciding to ignore those because we're uncomfortable with the implications of it. it. Took me a while to wrestle with the idea that a lot of letters were written by somebody other than Paul and signed with Paul's name on it. And that made me rethink, how do I view the Bible? What does that mean? Is it still an authority? Where does it fit in? It, it threw off my sense of how I looked at the Bible and truth and everything, I'm still here. I'm not an atheist sitting down at the coffee shop reading Richard Dawkins going, oh, 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 those stupid religious people, oh, oh, oh. I don't know if that's how he talks. I know he's English. I don't think he talks like a Victorian uh, salon pipe-smoking guy out of uh, journey around the earth. But anyways, you know, it was disconcerting. We're notorious for doing that. But... Um, all that's happening with the Pharisees is they might just have to make a minor upgrade. Jesus isn't telling people to throw out the Sabbath. Just may, maybe rethink it a little bit. 
You know, we should still be taking time off. We don't do that well enough. We don't. And we all know that, you know, but it's okay to still help people if they're sick. And it might mean that the Pharisees, here's the bigger issue, it might mean that the Pharisees, who are the experts, might have to stop and listen to this guy, this country hick, self-proclaimed prophet guy coming in from the north. And how could it be, they might have to admit that he has a special relationship with God, and he got that, but he didn't go through the proper channels. And that means that now suddenly I have to go from being the expert to being the listener, from being the authority to being, be, being the one who's in the humble position, and I'm not sure I want to do that, right? There's all this stuff that comes into play in your mind. And the man born blind, he comes along, he's a beggar. He doesn't have a job, he doesn't have a house, a degree, he doesn't have a reputation. In his society, he's got almost nothing, which means that he has nothing to lose, which according to Joni Mitchell, although somebody at the first service said it was Chris Christofferson who said it, he's got freedom, right? Just another word for nothing left to lose. So admitting that this Jesus guy might be from God, that's not easy, because you're admitting a lot more. That Pharisee's got something to protect. But the guy who's born blind, he's got nothing to lose. And it has always been the case, if you read through the Gospels, you notice this pattern that comes up over and over, which is that those who are kind of on the margins and those who are outside, and those who don't have a lot, always have a much easier time seeing God and being open to God working. And I think it's because they can see the truth because they got nothing to lose by accepting it. Those who are in a guarded, protective mode of thinking where everything is a threat and the world is full of slippery slopes and unintended consequences that people just aren't taking seriously and dangerous precedents, it's hard to see God through that. It's hard to be open-minded with that. They're close, they close off their minds because they're afraid they might be wrong. All right. And then at the end of the story, let's get to the end of the story here. Jesus gives this line, verses 39 and 40, 41. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Oh, I had to read that one a few times. I mean, first of all, isn't Jesus a great guy? Because when he hears that the guy's been banished, he goes out to find him. I picture Jesus sitting down with him on a bench, giving him a hug, like, you know, sorry, dude, I was trying to, I was trying to help out. <laughs> Do you believe? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah. And then he turns around and he, and, and, and he has that line at the end. You know, that line at the end that throws you off. I came so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, he's not literally making people lose their sight, so this isn't literal sight. This is about understanding, right? Seeing's a metaphor for understanding and getting it through the whole thing. So Jesus says he came to those who think they understand, but that those who, Jesus came, let me say that again, I confuse myself. Jesus came that those who think they understand 
can be made to know that they don't know. So that when they don't know, they will know. Because you have to admit you don't know before you're open to knowing. He came to reverse the roles, essentially. So that those who have nothing, he's going to show them. But those who think they have it, they need to know that they don't. He's opening some and closing the others. He came to make the humble knowing and the proud humble, which is classic Jesus. Right? You want to know what is the biggest obstacle to having a resilient and deep faith? And I think that is to be afraid of losing your life as you know it to accept new truths about Jesus. Jesus gives amazing insights to those who are open to it. But you have to kind of be open to it. And you have to not be afraid that Jesus is going to ruin your life if you accept what he says. Jesus gives amazing insights to those who are open. Amen.